As we begin this evening, we're going to turn to the book of Haggai. Haggai, Haggai, uh, however you pronounce it. I've pronounced it over the years, Haggai. But as we turn to this book, one of my favorites of the Minor Prophets, we're quickly coming to the end of our series. We have two more weeks left, and we resume again with our study here on December 5 with uh, Zechariah. Then we go to Malachi. And so we are just two weeks away. I trust that being in these minor prophets the past ten weeks has uh, stimulated your study. You've enjoyed it. I trust by having a challenge before you of reading through these each week, working through. Tonight we're even going to make reference again back to the book of Ezra as we look at Haggai. And uh, what has been, I believe, one of the interesting things of studying the minor prophets is how it takes you back in context, putting you with the, the historic period, either in the Kings or the Chronicles like we did last week with Josiah, or what it does is it puts us somewhere in the post-exilic period, and we have a better idea then how the chronology of the Old Testament works. In his commentary, Will We Ever Catch Up With the Bible, David Allen Hubbard has written on the 12 minor prophets and their message speaks to us today. He has this illustration as he begins uh, his study on the book of Haggai. He writes, show me your checkbook and I'll tell you something about your faith. Checkbook, faith, what do they have to do with each other? He then writes, well, I come to my house and you'll see what I believe is what most people think. The Bible on the coffee table, the shelves of religious books, the sign of a fish, perhaps as a front door symbol about your Christian faith, or some kind of a bumper sticker that has something to do with God loves you. These are evidence of my Christian faith, but my checkbook? I'll say it again. Show me your checkbook and I'll tell you something about your faith. This was a lesson our family learned, he writes, when my mother died. She had been a widow for three years and lived frugally on a modest salary from the church she served. When she died, my sister Laura, who was in charge of mother's estate, went through her checkbook and was amazed to discover that mother was giving away nearly half of what she earned to Christian causes. Particularly touching to my wife, Ruth, and me was a check stub dated March 1965. It contained the simple note in my mother's handwriting. The note was a quote, a thank you offering for Mary Ruth. That's all it said. You see, we were in Scotland at the time our daughter Mary Ruth was born. Mother was concerned about the welfare of our new baby because our first child had lived only a few weeks, too frail to survive in our kind of world. Therefore, we saw a check that said, a thank you offering for Mary Ruth, the stub said. A grateful grandmother not only shared with her friends the good news of a baby born strong and well, she gave a gift to God. Her checkbook spoke volumes about her Christian faith. This attitude toward money, my mother learned from her lifelong study of the Bible. Though it's hardly a textbook on bookkeeping or economic theory, the Bible is the most important book on money that we possess. It tells us where it comes from, what we should and should not do with it, and why we have it. How to use our wealth is among the most hotly debated issues we face. 
We will do well to get help from the Bible, especially from the prophet Haggai. Haggai's entire message, granted it's a short one, has to do with wealth, where we get it, how we use it. He reminds us that how we use wealth is a clear-cut indicator of what we think is important. Nothing announces our priorities more sharply than the way we open our wallets or our checkbooks. Then he writes, You have heard of the man who found himself in deep financial distress. His job was gone, his savings exhausted. He writes to a friend, quote, We've moved out of our house into a tent. He told a friend, quote, My son has had to leave college. My wife has canceled her medical treatments. My daughter is walking four miles to high school to save bus fare. And if the situation gets any worse, I'm going to have to sell my new Cadillac. And so with that in mind, we see somebody whose priorities are all wrong. Hubbard would go on to write, Priorities, we can all act misguided at times. Even the church, God's people, who should be salt and light to the world, can confuse her priorities, and put second things first. And that's what happened, he writes, in Haggai's day. The men and women of Judah had straggled back to their homes after years of captivity in Babylon, where they or their parents had been deported almost 70 years before by Nebuchadnezzar. At the time that Haggai's message begins, they had been back in the land now 16 years or so. All their energies had been consumed with the task of rebuilding their homes, reestablishing their businesses, or restoring their farmlands, orchards, and vineyards. Yet, despite all their efforts, they were not prospering. And so with that in mind, God would say to them, Consider your ways. And that's the message where Haggai is going to tell them, First, put God's work First. Secondly, he's going to tell them, believe that God's work is greater than it looks. And thirdly, don't expect immediate results. With that in mind, would you have a word of prayer with me then? And then let's look into this book, work our way through it in the few minutes that we have. Not a long time, but a time enough that gives us a sort of an overview of Haggai. Doubt if you've had your devotions Maybe you have this week because we're working through it. But it's not one of those books that you jump out or quote to a friend. Or like we said last week with Zephaniah, you don't see it in the end zone of a football game with a sign held up, Haggai 1.5, consider your ways. All right? It's not typical. Let's have a word of prayer and then we'll begin, shall we? Father, thank you for this evening, this opportunity. One, to sing. Two, to study the Word of God. Three, to go away changed. Lord, we just pray that the Spirit of God would use the message that was given by you many years ago through Haggai to be a relevant message for us today. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction in righteousness. Whatsoever things were written aforetime in the Old Testament were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. To that end, then, we would take Paul's promises that as we look into the Word of God, we can be stimulated, challenged, and changed even from this fabulous book. Pray your blessing now on our study these next few minutes in Jesus' name for His glory and honor. Amen. 
As you look in the book of Haggai for a moment, I want you to imagine with me, we are going to go back now to about 500 years before Jesus. The year is 520. This book is exactly dated in the second year of Darius the king. On the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came by the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. So we have the date. It is 520. However, as you stand now, it is no longer standing in Babylon. We are standing in Jerusalem. We have been given permission. 50,000 of us have been granted by the king a grant, a permission to return back from exile. 70 years In Babylon, we return to Jerusalem, the goal to return and to build a temple to our God, the Most High God, the king would write in the book of Ezra. And as we return, we were to begin. Sixteen years have gone by, and we are still standing in rubble, ashes, weeds, and ruin where the temple should be. In other words, we had money, we had stuff, lumber, the wood to build the temple. Sixteen years have gone by. It has not gotten done. And what have we done with all the money, the wood, the stone, and everything, and the gold and the silver and all the stuff that we left Babylon with? What's happened to it? And after 16 years, how come we're not getting ahead as a family? What's going on? We thought God was going to bring us back from the exile, deliver us and prosper us. After all, we're God's children. Why isn't he looking out for us better than he is? Well, something had taken place. As I said, after captivity, if you remember well, we had talked about over the years from The time then when the tribe of Judah, the southern two tribes of Judah and Benjamin, were plundered and carried off by Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonians. The Jewish people now were either scattered among the nations or were taken captive and carried away into a foreign country, and there they lived. As you read the Psalms and some of the things of the Old Testament, they lament for decades, asking, Lord, how long? Daniel and others had prophesied. And the year came in 538, a decree from the king to go back to your land. And so they headed back. And over the two years in which they headed back and got everything together and then finally arrived in the land about 536, they were led as a group, 50,000 of them, under a governor that had been appointed. His name is Zerubbabel. And he will be the king's appointed governor. Jewish, take the people back. And so he will lead them civilly, as it were, as the civic leader, the governmental leader, the governor. And he was to take with him a priest from the priestly line by the name of Joshua. And so this Joshua and Zerubbabel are the two leaders who take the people back into the land. And they began. They began to build the temple. 
And as you read in the book of Ezra, which we will do, they were excited when they went back. They started building. And then, if you remember what had happened about 722 B.C., how the Assyrians and others had come through the land, and what they had done is carried off the ten northern tribes. Remember us talking about that? Well, when the Assyrians would carry off, take the Jews captive, they did something else. They brought in, because they did that in all kinds of other countries they were conquering. And one of the things that you tried to do to keep a nation under your thumb is you would take its people out, deport them, and you would bring in people from other countries, and so they had to intermingle and intermarry. And to make matters worse, they couldn't all speak the same languages anymore. And so they sort of lived in little clusters throughout the country in small little villages and towns. And they could never raise an army because they can't even talk to each other. You had no fear of rebellion way off in Babylon. Does that make sense? Well, when the Jews were carried off out of Jerusalem en masse, you already had some of these pocket areas all over throughout the countryside. And when the 50,000 came back now and started building, several of these regional governors under the Persian king now, instead of the Babylonians, the Persians took over, the Medes and the Persians, they wrote letters back and said, the Jews are planning a revolt or usurp. And the result of it was the work was halted, stopped. And Haggai will come along and say, start it up again. He preaches from God to Zerubbabel and to Joshua and said, God said you're to begin the work. And they will do it. And in a month, they will lay the foundation. In over 90 days, they're going to start building a temple. Probably gets more work done faster than any other prophet that we have in the Bible. Within three months, you've got a temple going up that had stood, been destroyed for now 70, 80 years. And he turned everything around. But just before he came on the scene, the people were in dire straits. And so I want to begin, if you would look with me, the people... What stimulated to get them working? And I'll point out some dates under background. The people of Israel had been given the opportunity by Cyrus, king of Persia, to return to their own land and to rebuild the temple of the Lord of Jerusalem. And if you'll turn back to Ezra with me, let's go back to keep your finger in Haggai. Let's go back to Ezra to make sense. Ezra and Nehemiah take place, these two books, after the return to the land. When you found Ezra, keep your finger there. Some 50,000 people now had responded to the invitation of King Cyrus of the Medes and the Persians. And they had gone home back to Jerusalem from Babylon. The rebuilding project was hampered by enemies of Israel and soon came to a complete halt. It was in this setting, when everything stopped, that Haggai preached to the people. Now notice there are several key dates set the background from the ministries of both Haggai and the other prophet that's going to tell and preach at the same time is Zechariah, who we will look at in two weeks. Here are the key dates. 538, Cyrus of the Medes, who had conquered the Babylonians, issued a decree allowing the people to return. 
In 536, upon the people's return, an altar for sacrifice was built, and the work of rebuilding starts. But the threats and the legal suits caused the people to stop working on the temple. They wrote letters, and actually they were lying as they wrote back to the king. Only the foundation had been laid. Nothing got done. Sixteen years later, in 520, after over 15 years, almost 16 years of nothing being done, the prophet Haggai says, from God, God's message, whoa, 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 consider your ways. We need to think about what's been happening here. I read from Ezra this evening. And I'm in Ezra 1 now, 1 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, says, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever there is among you of all his people among the Jews, may his God be with him. Let him go to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. This is 538. Every survivor at whatever place he may live, let the men of that place support him with silver and gold and goods and cattle, together with a free will offering for the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And so, chapter 2, verse 1, Now these are the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar in 586 had carried away to Babylon. And now these people are going to return to Judah, each to his city. And you'll see that they will come under Zerubbabel, chapter 2, verse 2, and under Joshua, the high priest. And then you will see the names with the census of the people that are all added up in chapter 2. You'll see the Levites in chapter 3, and you'll read all about them, chapter 2 verse 70, now the priests and the Levites and some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, the temple servants lived in all their cities and all Israel in their cities. Chapter 3 verse 1, now when the seventh month came and the sons of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem and Joshua pronounced here Jeshua, the son of Jehozadak, and his brothers, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brothers arose and built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it as it is written in the law of Moses. So they set up the altar on its foundation, for they were terrified because of the peoples of the lands that lived around him. They celebrated the Feast of Booths. Verse 5, And afterward there was a continual burnt offering celebrating the calendar. Chapter 3, verse 6, Now from the first day of the seventh month they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. Then they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, oil to the Sidonians, to the Tyrians to bring cedar wood to Lebanon from the Sea of Joppa according to the permission that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. And so we read then what's going to happen. If you keep your finger there for a moment, let's turn now back to the book of Haggai. What's going to be important now as we read in the book of Haggai, chapter 1, 
verse 1. In the second year of Darius, the king, on the first day of the sixth month, the word came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor, and to Joshua. Thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says, it's not time to build a house. The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai, the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Four times we're going to see that begin actually and sort of surround three different occasions, messages that are very powerful. Haggai's message He's going to help these people deal with what I will call misguided priorities. Consider your ways. And again in verse 7, chapter, he says again, consider your ways. And on the, I want to look at, with you tonight at three occasions when they are told to set your heart upon your ways. Reassess. Set your priorities in order. And that's the expression, consider your ways. And as we do that, as we look at these different occasions, what's going to take place is the first one there we have put, when the people, when the people disregarded the work of God. God tells him, you need to think again. Consider your ways when the people disregarded the work of God. And we find this in chapter 1 all the way through the end of this chapter. And I want you to notice with me as we talk about the people had disregarded the work of God, two effects brought out in this first message. And I want you to see that the first one I call the effect of the disregard by the people. Let me continue reading. As you look in this passage, something had taken place. And I want to read from verse 7. Consider your ways, go up to the mountains, bring wood, rebuild the temple that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away because the Lord says, My house which lies desolate while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew. The earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, the wine, the oil, on the ground produces anything, on men, on cattle, and the labor of your hands. And so as we see in this passage of Scripture, nothing when they came back and they worked for 16 years, nothing was being blessed by God over those 16 years when they had brought back so much stuff to rebuild the temple. And then they were to set up their homes and everything. Why? Why was nothing being blessed? Over 16 years. Well, verses 2 through 4, God says because of their procrastination. Their procrastination, we read that. Remember how we were reading? Notice what God says. Thus says the Lord of hosts in verse 2. This people. And it must have upset God. There must, there's a sense of displeasure here. He doesn't call them my people. He refers to them as this people who should be acting like my children, but they aren't. I don't even know who they are, is the idea. And so it's a note of displeasure. They had what had taken place. 
Verse 4 is implying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? You see, there's, they would make homes in one of two ways. You would either do rough hewn stone, and you and I have seen that where you go out and you get slabs of field slate and you lay it, and the inside looks sometimes like we'll build a wall around a garden or something with a flat slate, and you know how it's got the jagged edges and and whatnot. So you build a home like that, or you make it out of clay, sun-dried clay blocks, and they almost look like bricks, but they're larger, adobe type of a brick. And you build a home like that, either way, the inside either looks like rough rock or it looks like unfinished concrete. And so what the people would do then is they would line the walls with wood, almost in a herringbone pattern. And so it's referred to as paneling. They would board it and then inside would be smooth walls and finished. But you have to ask the question. And they were doing that. They, they had, over the past 16 years, built nice homes for themselves throughout the area in which they were living. Some in different cities, some in the Jerusalem region. More often, they were building it away from Jerusalem because if they built it, and as you read Ezra, if you build Jerusalem, which would have been like a fortified city, it would have signaled to people around the land that these people are starting to build a nation again to themselves. And so what the people did is in small villages, they were building some very nice homes. In their day, nice. Even in our day, they would be highly livable. Here's the problem. Well, there's two problems. One, God's work never got done because they invested everything they had in their own stuff. They let the things of God set aside. But number two, they were using materials that should have been for God's purposes to build their own homes. Does that make sense? Where'd you get the wood, guys? Um, Oh, we had a lot of wood. Where'd you get the wood? I mean... As you move through the different provinces coming back from Babylon, they had been given a decree that as you go through the different provinces, the different lands that you go through as you have need and build a supply line and build your supply train, they will give you the supplies. And the supplies dwindled before any temple ever got built. And that's because it was in the people's houses. And they were using things that should have been given to God for their own comfort. It's a pretty powerful message. And so there's a sense almost of materialism on their part of a procrastination, a selfishness by taking things that actually had belonged to God. And that's why he shows the disfavor. They had failed to put him first. He wasn't a high priority. Hubbard writes in a commentary, I wanted to quote this one paragraph. He will write something about, put God's work first if you expect God's blessing. That's Haggai's lesson. We're going to talk about what he's going to go on to say about looking at our checkbook. But I want you to notice what's going to happen here. The effect of the discourse by Haggai. 
I want you to see verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, as Haggai said, consider your ways, the governor and the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord their God in the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. The effect of the discourse, the people got back to action. What was accomplished by this exhortation? Well, first of all, the effect of this discourse is that it stirred the people, got busy in the work, verses 12 and verse 14, and when they did so, God was pleased. And so as Hubbard writes, if someone were to look over your shoulder as you write your monthly checks, what would he find about yours and my priorities? You and I know that house payments have to be made, We don't want to face eviction or foreclosure. Utilities must be paid, he says. You can't do without light, heat, water, telephone. You hold out a little bit of cash for food, and you need a little bit more now as prices are going up. Insurance is due, and so is the car payment, and then those credit card bills. Apartment stores, gasoline stations, all of that has to come out of our income. Item after item we check off, and hope that month end finds us with a small surplus of the Lord's for the Lord's work. But he says, we ought to put God's work first, Haggai says. And you'll have more of what you need to take care of everything else. And that's God's message in verse 14, 13 and 14, where the Lord then says, I am with you and I will bless you. Consider your ways when the people disregarded the work of the Lord. Let's go a little bit further. He's also going to tell them to consider your ways when the people became discouraged in the work of the Lord. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Keep your finger in Haggai for just a moment. Would you go back with me to Ezra again? Oh, no, I've got to keep flipping back and forth. I think we do for just a moment. And if we go back there and we look for just a moment in chapter 3, something fascinating happened when they started building again that temple. And as they started to lay it, now in the second year of their coming to the house of God, this is, by the way, I'm sorry, Ezra chapter 3, verse 8. Now in the second year of their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jozadak, and the rest of the brothers and the priests and the Levites and all who came back began the work and appointed the Levites from 20 years and older to oversee the work of the house of the Lord. So as you look in Ezra chapter 3 verse 8, this is what starts to happen and what takes place. Then Jeshua with the sons and brothers stood united with Cadmiel and his sons and Judah and the sons of Hanadad and their sons, etc. Now when the builders, verse 10, had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals, 
to praise the Lord according to the directions of King David. And they sang, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his loving kindness is upon Israel forever. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Yet many of the priests and the Levites and heads of fathers' households the old men, now you've got to keep in mind, when we talk about old men, we're talking about men who may be 80, 90 years old. And when the king had given the order that you can go back to your land, how many of you have gone to Israel? How many of you, had a, how many of you have flown over to Israel on a plane, El, El or one of the Israeli You've had that privilege to fly and you've gone over with a a group of Jewish people. I've had that that privilege on several occasions when you've gone and you're flying and the whole plane is Jewish people going to Jerusalem. And for many of them, they're in their 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s. It's their first time to go back. And you see them crying, I'm going back to Israel. There's something deep in their psyche that says... This is that pilgrimage they ought to make. This is their homeland. Well, that's not a new phenomenon in the second millennia. That was taking place back here when they were told you can go back. They were pretty excited to return home and to go back. Some of them had been deported, carried off as captives when they were in their junior high age, early high school years. And they had seen a temple that Solomon had built. And when you saw this thing with the gold and the silver and the brass, even though it had fallen into ruin and then been, but they had seen something pretty striking. Well, the new temple, 90 by 90, and it's being built, and as it's going up, it doesn't have the craftsmen that they once had when they built Solomon's temple. Didn't have all the forced labor that they had back then. Doesn't quite look the same. So, verse 12 of Ezra 3, Yet many of the priests and Levites and heads of the fathers wept, when they saw the who had seen the first temple, wept with a loud voice when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, while many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the shout of joy from the sound of the weeping of the people, for the people shouted with a loud shout, and the sound was heard far away. They're pretty excited as the new temple starts to get built. Or were they? Okay, so, by the way, chapter 5 of Ezra, verse 1. When the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ido prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem and Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, then Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jezedek arose and began to rebuild the house which is in Jerusalem and the prophets of God were with them supporting them. The work is undergoing but we come to chapter 2 of Haggai. It's being laid, it's being built and it doesn't look like it used to. And so as you look with me, I want you to see something and we'll kind of hurry on here but notice with me 
Haggai in this discouragement is, look, what do you see? And he's going to have to deal with a couple of things, a cause of discouragement. I read Haggai 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. On the first day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. It's been just a few weeks now. Now speak to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, to the remnant of the peoples, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? Doesn't quite look like the older one. And so what I want you to see is as we look at the cause of the discouragement, you're going to see a couple of things. Uh, Well, let's back up for just a moment before we get to the promise of blessing. I want you to jot in a couple of things. They're discouraged when they look back and they're going to be discouraged when they look about. There's going to be a couple of things. They're going to be, first of all, overwhelmed in the task. And Nehemiah's whole book is about that. If you could see Jerusalem, you would have been entirely overwhelmed because when the Babylonians had come through 70 years before, if it was burnable, they burned it. And when they burned everything, the homes, all the homes, they burned the temple. And the order of the king, because the people had not been obeying him, they had been rebelling, Nebuchadnezzar had said, do not leave one stone upon another. So they battered down every block in Solomon's temple, and they battered down every block in the walls. And in 70 years, weeds, trees, and everything had grown up. It was a flattened pile of rubbish. They were clearing it now and building this new foundation and starting to put a small superstructure on it. But as they did, because of it just seemed this thing is standing in the middle of rubbish, and number two, it doesn't look anything like what I remember. And they became extremely discouraged. And so he deals with the cause of discouragement as they were thinking nostalgically of the past. Do you ever go on a vacation? Uh, You take your family, oftentimes couples do this, they go on a honeymoon. And then on the 10th anniversary, you'll go back. And it, let me give you a different illustration. Doesn't have the same appeal. When I was a little kid living in Minnesota, my parents took me to what was in central Minnesota the ultimate theme park. The old legend, Minnesota has 10,000 lakes, and on the license plate it says land of 10,000 lakes. That's really not true. Minnesota has just about 12,000 lakes, okay? And so there are that many lakes. And, and if it's a little bit bigger than this room, it's called a lake. All right? So there's lots of them. But you have all these lakes this size. And Minnesota was known as a lumberjacking state. And so the legend of Paul Bunyan and his great blue ox babe. As Paul Bunyan traveled through the Northlands, wherever he left his footprints, you have a lake. And so my parents told me, and I was about just before kindergarten age, because in that age then we moved to southern Minnesota, 
when I started kindergarten. But during that summer between there, we were going to go up to Brainerd, Minnesota, Paul Bunyan land. And before this, my mom and dad had told me about Paul. So you're a four-and-a-half-year-old, and you're told that wherever he stepped, there's a lake. And I've seen big lakes, and I'm going, how big was this guy? And so when you come to Paul Bunyan land in Brainerd, Minnesota, outside the gate to go into think Disney World, okay? This was Disney World. It's about as big as the youth building. Okay, so it's a little smaller than Disney World, but not to a four and a half year old. I mean, they might have a tilt a world and, you know, something, I don't know, but not much. But there outside is this statue of Paul Bunyan. And I looked at that and immediately broke down crying because he scared the daylights out of me. What you do is, I guess your parents go to a booth, and then you tell them, my son's name is David. And then you walk up, and there's this statue. It is enormous. And the jaws go up and down. It goes, hello, David. And you go, and it's like, be still my soul. And as a four-year-old, you just melted away, and I cried, he's huge. And I was just petrified and hated Paul Bunyan Land. Okay. The years go by, 35 years go by, and I haven't been back there in 35. I'm not going near that place, okay? But now I'm pastoring back in Minnesota. I'd been out, finished seminary, pastored in Pennsylvania, and been asked to come back and pastor a, um, a larger ministry back in Minnesota. And we lived in southern Minnesota where the, the church was, and I decided what we would do is I would take my three young sons. Lucy and I would take them to Paul Bunyan land. I was telling, you've got to see this. And I'm telling you, you've got you to go to Brainerd and see Paul Bunyan land. And, 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 and I, I prepared the kids because this, it's huge, you know. And, and, and Well, an old ceramic type statue after 35 years, it doesn't look so good anymore. And, you know, uh, when it comes to technical things, they've improved a lot. You know, computer... But we pulled into Paul Bunyan land, and lo and behold, the parking lot's a little potholed, and it's a little decrepit. And that statue's actually about three times taller than me, all right? And, and my kids looked at it, and, go, and, I, and they just like, you've got to be kidding, Dad. LAUGHTER uh, well, I remember it differently. Okay. They were, you know, I once in a while catch them looking at each other going, you know, like rolling eyes going, whatever makes Dad happy. Okay. You know, if he's having a good time, it's fine with us, but anytime, Dad, we can go. You know, it's like, this is like Disney World. Well, they had been to Disney World. This is not quite like Disney World. But, and you know, if Babe and Paul Bunyan stomped all their life, they couldn't make one lake. I mean, that's how little this thing was, but it looked different. It's amazing what the years do to our minds. And that's what had happened here. They were remembering that 
And they were thinking back, and over the years in Babylon, they must have talked about the past. And hey, by the way, that can happen to us at church any time. And the older we get, the more we think back on former days. But as we said, uh, as we, we look back, we can become discouraged. We don't have the same excitement. And that's when we start building our faith, either on nostalgia or when we start doing things where we let emotions take over rather than obedience and following the Word of God. And that's what had happened in this day. And so what has happened in, in verses 4 through 9 is the promise of blessing of God, or as it were, deliverance from discouragement. But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, the high priest, for I am with you. As for the promise which I made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. Don't be discouraged. To keep on moving ahead. There are some tough days, but I will bless. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth and the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations and they will come with the wealth of the nations and I will fill this house. And so as he talks to them, the silver is mine, the gold is mine, the latter glory of this house will be greater than the former, thus says the Lord. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. In other words, you build this temple in obedience to me, because to this spot, one day, will come the glory of God. And what he is doing here is Haggai is promising what we call the second temple period. And under Herod, in about 400 years in this spot, will be erected a huge temple. A lot like the Solomonic temple. And to that temple, Jesus Christ would walk. But ultimately, what he is prefiguring is a greater day even in the future. And so, this isn't the ultimate. We're not there yet. You and I oftentimes start out in the work of God. The college student heads off to college thinking, my dad has told me what it's going to be like to go to Bible college. I'll get there. Folks, we sometimes, folks will start working at church. We'll get involved in the work of the ministry. We'll do things here. Can't wait to get in the choir. Can't wait to get involved. Can't wait to start doing the work of the Lord. We start working at it. We get involved in a school. We start seminary. Whatever it is, we start immediately. I mean, we start into the work. And immediately as we get involved, we start to notice that there isn't this flash of emotion. There isn't this, well, I thought it would be different. As if when we start getting involved in a ministry or we attend a Bible college or whatever it is, we think we've entered the new Jerusalem. Uh, We're not there yet. And so we need to keep our eyes yet on something further out there. Further and better is still coming. And God then will tell them, consider your ways. Notice And this third one, when the people, this should be Roman numeral three, when the people desecrated the work of God, chapter two, verse 10. And I'll hurry because our time is gone. On the 24th of the ninth month in the second year, we're three months now into it, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, asks now the priest for a ruling. If a man carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches bread with his fold or crooked food, wine, oil, or any of the food, will it become holy? And the priest answered, no. So if you take something that was dedicated to God and you touch it to something ordinary, does it suddenly become holy? No. 
So Haggai asked, If a man who is unclean from a corpse touches any of these, will the latter become unclean? And the priest answered, "Uh Uh-huh, it will become unclean. Then Haggai said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Sixteen years of heart pollution by withholding from me. And now, 90 days of serving me, and you're wondering why the crops aren't growing and why we're not prospering? God says, I'm just testing you. You've been unclean for so long, and you think for a short time touching it, everything's going to be changed. I'm waiting to see your faithfulness. So a person, a young believer, then says, I'm going to start taking God at his word and start God tells me in his word in the New Testament that I ought ought to give out of a heart of gratitude back to God for as he has blessed me. And then he will bless me. And so a person starts to give. Have you ever noticed when I was first a believer and started tithing? I didn't know that we don't live under the tithe. We live beyond that. That's Old Testament. We live in the new era, which means we go beyond that. And we grace give. I didn't know better. But I started doing that. And then I learned something. When you start being faithful to God, there's an enemy out there. And so about the time you start giving God what's his, the transmission goes out. And the refrigerator breaks down. And that refrigerator is the same price as that check you wrote out. And you begin to wonder... Well, maybe God would rather have me use that money now and get this repaired because we need it. What happens is an enemy is going to start throwing it, and God just wants to see if you're faithful. That's what was going on here. As we go a little bit further, and we notice here then what happens is the people had desecrated the work. The people had desecrated the work of God by their attitude. And it had polluted all their labor and caused blessings to be withheld. As I said, they polluted their labor. And it caused blessings to be withheld. And we read that in these verses. So verse 15, But now do consider from this day onward, before one stone was placed on another of the temple, from that time when one comes to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. God says, I will bless you. And as we look then in verse 18, Do consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day when the temple of the Lord was founded, consider, is this the seed still in the barn, even including the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree? It has not borne fruit, but from this day forward, I will bless you. Then the word of the Lord came on the second day of Haggai, on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to the Zerubbabel. I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow the thrones of the kingdoms and destroy the power of the others. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and make you a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. As we close this evening, I'm going to read from a commentary just before we close that says this. 
We get confused in our priorities not only by putting our own needs first, but also by gauging God's work in human terms. Civic projects are impressive and prestigious. Public libraries seem to have more noble service. Boy Scouts and YMCA programs seem to be reaching thousands. And sometimes the church suffers by a comparison. Why should I give to it? What good will it do me to work for Christian causes that often taught on the brink of financial failure? Haggai's word is good. We ought to believe that God's work is greater than it may look at any time to our human eyes. It's his presence that makes the difference. Don't judge his mission by secular standards. Keep working. Keep giving. And with that, he goes on to say, Haggai's word then came three months after the rebuilding began. Evidently, the people began to wonder why God had not yet kept his promise to bless them. They had tried to obey for 90 days, yet they were still living in depressing situations. God was putting their obedience to the test. Were they really serious about their devotion? Would they stick with it? For three long months, he tried them, and then as they sighed with relief, he promised to bless. Hey, by the way, I firmly believe that that's what's going on in our economy. I firmly believe this is one of the opportunities for God to test us and see if we are faithful to him. And what will we do through this time? Don't expect immediate return, Hubbard writes. God reserves the right to bless us if and when he is ready. Our task through it all is to be faithful. The rest is up to him. He writes, We have not yet caught up with the Bible in sorting out our priorities in this 21st century. The Bible is not only the book that speaks of God, it's the book that speaks about our material things. It warns us against the love of money, the wrong use of money, the distracting influence sometimes of our possessions. In a society consumed with talk of gross national product, guaranteed annual income, minimum wage, high stock dividends, capital gains taxes, we need to catch up with the Bible to see what money, possessions, and the things we count so dear to us is all about. We are simply stewards. It all belongs to him. It's a good challenge to us, isn't it? especially as we come into the holiday seasons, most especially as this week is what? Thanksgiving. And with that, let's thank God. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for how you have blessed us as a nation. And I wonder sometimes if Haggai's message back then is not the message we need today in our country and among so many of our churches and programs to consider our ways that we have gotten caught up in the culture. We hear of people with extraordinary large amounts, income and savings, and we hang our heads in discouragement and think, I need to try to live like that. Or I need more. And perhaps even then the ministry, the mission, the outreach, the worldwide program of God 
isn't all it could be because it doesn't have all it needs. I thank you that at Colonial, there's a heart different than that. And might you continue to cause us to keep our priorities right before you. And so we take Haggai to heart, knowing that the same God yesterday, today, forever, thinks the same yesterday, today, forever, and tests our obedience. And Lord, in some very discouraging, difficult days that we live in, when the people of God can desecrate a work of God or become discouraged, or even in the midst of all, disregard the work of God, help us not to do that. Help us to be faithful. Thank you for each one here this evening to sit under and to take to heart the reading of Ezra and Haggai. And may this week, as we sit with our families around a table and reflect upon your goodness to us and give thanks, might even our study this evening on how you show that everything you have I've given you for a purpose, to ultimately glorify God, that even as we eat and spend time with family and others, that we would praise you for all that you've done in our lives your great grace, and your wonderful blessings. Find us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name, please. Amen.